Uh, that doesn't mean we don't prepare, but it means that God, praying to God is the most important of all those things. Secondly, we talked about the idea of moving toward um, organic type relationships and not mechanical databases. So from the perspective of that, there are tools that we can say, all right, we're going to have a checklist and say, here are the people who've been gone for three weeks, right? And we can approach that very mechanically and walk up to them and say, you've been gone for three weeks, why do you hate God, right? Or we can nuance it and say, hey, you notice you haven't been here for a little while. What's going on in your life? Is there some way that we can encourage you? How can we pray for you? What do you need, right? And if we take that approach for the normal everyday absences from church and things that come up in life, then when there are big spiritual issues, I think we are in a much better place to deal with those as well because we've established a relationship with one another in which we know that there is concern for each other's well-being, not just we're out to get you or we're doing this task because we have to or any of those sorts of things. The third thing that we looked at was the idea that it's time with one another versus only classroom. Now, I didn't say instead of classroom because there's a place for formal and informal interactions. Formal like we're going to do this church service at this time, we're going to do it every week till Jesus comes back unless we change it, right? Versus, hey, let's get together for coffee for three weeks on Mondays at noon or whatever, right? And it can be a scheduled thing, but it's not a planned thing that's necessarily a function of a church service. It's not necessarily as formal as we're going to go through this book or this Bible study. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. It's just the fact that we're having interactions with each other at different points in time. Today what I want us to talk about is this idea of whether growth is parallel, as in multiple areas of our lives are growing to be more like Jesus, or linear, more the idea that everything in our life is sort of one big thing and we go from this step to this step to this step to this step. So let's talk about those. We'll start first with the idea of linear growth. I, for me, if I was trying to sum up what this would be, and these are not like official terms, we could use some other phrase, but it, the, the idea behind this is that spiritual growth is automatic with no setbacks, right? So if we have this idea, then we're going to say this person gets saved here, and then three months later, they will have completed this introductory class to our church, and now they're here. And then a year from now, they'll be here, and they'll be ready to take, you know, 2.0 of whatever class. And then, you know, within three years, they're going to be teaching a class, and we can move on to the next person. It doesn't work like that. I think for most of us, it's not this nice, neat, we hit the targets, and, and then we're immediately at the next step. We talked about this before. Knowledge or amount of truth does not guarantee maturity because that's part of what factors into thinking this way. The Jews, for example, had great privileges. Someone want to turn and read for us Romans 2, 17 to 24? Anyone like to read that for us? Bob, go ahead. Thank you. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal. Do you steal? 
you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit it? Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So what what privileges did the Israelites have? There's a big one highlighted here. Okay, so fellowship with God, but what had God given them that he hadn't really given anybody else? The law, okay. Uh, Romans 9, 4 is the other passage. Let me just read that verse because I think it will add to it. He said, uh, Paul says he's concerned for the sake of the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. So if we add to that the law, all of these spiritual blessings, God has given them many spiritual blessings. But Paul rebukes them. Why? Why does Paul rebuke the Israelites here? Yeah, they're, they're not doing what the law requires. They know all the right things to do, but they're not doing them. They know to tell other people not to do these things. Now, some people would argue, well, the Jews never really robbed temples, and so perhaps Paul is straying into a little bit of exaggeration or hyperbole here to say, well, you say to honor God and worship him, do you rob temples? This was more of a thing that the Gentiles were usually accused of. But, I mean, there's a sense in which, as we look at the end of the Old Testament, they were robbing the temple by not bringing the tithes to God in the proper way with the proper heart attitude. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to say Paul's rebuking them for that. It doesn't have to be taken literally like they're going in and stealing gold out of a pagan temple or something like that. All that being said, the idea is the hypocrisy that would say, don't do this sin while you do it secretly yourself, which the song we sang about talks about that. I think that's a danger for any of us if we're going to teach God's word or speak to somebody else about it, is that we would do it in such a way that we're blind to the fact that we're sinning in the same way, and then we say, no, you don't do that sin. And that completely undermines what we're saying. It doesn't change the truth of what we're saying, because God said it, but it does undermine it in a, in a certain way. So the Jews had these great privileges Amount of truth, amount of knowledge, amount of opportunity, however you want to phrase it, doesn't guarantee spiritual maturity. We see that with the Israelites. Even the early believers knew much truth. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 2. Hebrews 5.12 says a very similar thing. Who wants to read 1 Corinthians 3.2? Paul, go ahead. Okay. Hebrews 5.12, you should be ready to be teachers, but you have need for someone to teach you elementary principles of God's oracles. You've come to need milk and not solid food. So that one gets less to the extent of blessing or opportunity and more to the time factor, which is if you tell people a certain amount of truth here, and you tell people a certain amount of truth here, there's a reasonable expectation that when you get to this point, now they're following that truth. And in these two passages, Paul talks to the Corinthians, 
and Paul or someone else speaks to the Hebrews and says, you don't know, you, you know, but you don't do, and so you have to hear again. We see that in addition to these two things, age, position, or time since conversion does not guarantee maturity. We looked at Nicodemus three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. Nicodemus, Jesus says to him, you're the teacher of Israel, and I'm telling you basic spiritual realities by means of physical illustrations, and you're saying, what? You're saying, I don't understand, but you're the one who's supposed to be teaching all of Israel to follow after me, and you don't get it yourself. So there was a degree of spiritual blindness that was present with the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and yet they were the ones who had a responsibility to teach all of the people. And Nicodemus, the, the fact that he says, going into his mother's womb when he is old, we don't know exactly how old he was, but to be a member of the Sanhedrin, that typically didn't happen, you know, when you were 15. Yeah, I think you had to be over 30. And in all likelihood, if he's speaking of himself as old, we're probably talking upper 40s into 50, maybe even 60. Their idea of age was different. And age is not just a number. We're not going to know that. But I'm just saying he is old enough that he should have gotten it by that point from a human perspective. And Jesus says, you don't get it. Uh, we look at Peter, for example. Let's look at this one together. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 23. Peter has this amazing confession of Jesus being God, the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. And then verse 23, when Jesus says he has to die, someone want to read verse 23 for us? Jonathan, go ahead. So right after he says this amazing theological truth, he tries to fight with Jesus about whether or not Jesus should die. And Jesus said, you're basically trying to accomplish Satan's purpose if you thwart me going to the cross, which he couldn't. But he's saying, this is Satan's plan, not mine. Stop, Peter. He rebukes him. Similar kind of thing in chapter 26. You're familiar with this. But in chapter 26, we have the account of Peter's denial, and we read that in Matthew not too terribly long ago. Peter's denial doesn't come right after Jesus says, start following me. How long has Peter been with Jesus by the time he denies him? Three years, three and a half years, something like that. Peter's supposed to, Jesus is going to die, Peter and the other apostles are supposed to go out into the world and and preach the gospel to the world. And when they're supposed to be ready to go out and teach the world, Peter denies Jesus. So, as we think about these things, spiritual growth, I think this idea that spiritual growth is automatic without any setbacks is clearly not the case according to Scripture. We're going to talk about the fact that it should still happen. I, I want you to understand, I'm not saying... No setbacks means, ah, you can live your whole life and never have any growth and it's all great. We're not saying that. We're just saying it's not a neat thing we can chart out and it looks exactly the same in every case. So let's talk about that, this idea of parallel growth. Um, 
The idea that I'm trying to get across here is that spiritual growth is progressive but not linear. And without going to the danger of the idea that we can completely compartmentalize areas of our lives, because we can't really, but I think we would all recognize that someone could be really responsible and mature in one area of life and not as much in another area of life. Now, will they eventually affect each other? Yes. If you're immature here, it's going to spill over and affect other things. But because there are many aspects to who we are as people, not everything gets fixed all at once in God's, in God's process of spiritual growth, I guess is the idea I'm trying to say. So number one, growth depends ultimately on the Holy Spirit, not my effort. Yet I press on until I am with God. So this is connected with this idea that it's the Spirit's work, not our schemes, but we're looking at it on a more individual level. Just as we would pray for the growth of the entire body, looking at Paul's prayers for the church, we would also pray for the growth of individual people in the body, ourselves included. Now I think we recognize we can get a few things in order by our effort. A lot of the people who looked at the moral teachings of the Bible as though you could separate it from the rest of it, but they would look at the moral teachings of the Bible and they would say, well, these are ideals to live up to. Ben Franklin would be an older example of this. A more recent example would be someone like, uh, was it Robert Bennett, the whole Book of Virtues idea. Here are moral lessons to teach children, and if they learn those lessons, then they will be good people. And the reality is, if you teach people certain ways to live, to be a good citizen, to not do harm to other people, all those sorts of things, people can maintain a lot of those things by their own effort, at least for a period of time. What's that? That's not from generation to generation. No, I would say if, you're, if your connection to doing right is just because your parents read you lessons out of a book, at some point you're going to say, why am I doing this and quit? So, uh, the danger of this is if it seems like things are going well apart from the work of God's Spirit and apart from prayer and apart from fellowship with other believers and apart from these things that God say are necessary to spiritual growth, we might start to have the idea, well, I can just do this on my own. But here's where I think we look at certain passages that that show us the foolishness of that idea. The Bible demands change in all aspects. Someone want to look at Galatians 5, uh, 19 to 23, read that for us? Who'd like to read that for us? Evan, go ahead. Yes, please. That's a pretty extensive list of things. So, if the Bible says to put off, as we see in other passages like Ephesians 4, we'll look at that in a moment. Um, the Bible says that we need to put off 
idolatry. We say, okay, I can, I can do that. Uh, put off drunkenness. That's probably a little harder, but I can probably do that. Put off outburst of anger. Uh, I don't know if I can do that consistently all the time. If it was one of the things from this list, we could be like, I, I can put off the one thing. But the Bible is saying all of these things need to go away and be replaced by all of these things. He says fruit, singular, so they're all aspects of the same thing. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and all of these things together. We start to realize this is an impossible task, humanly speaking. So because of the nature of the aspects, all of these different things that are involved in it, and then if you turn over to Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24, I want to read Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 for us. Norma, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. You go ahead, Bruce. That's fine. Okay. Yeah. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the forming Okay, so if we look at this, as individual human beings, when we think about the aspects of who we are as people, we tend to think in terms of thinking and wanting and doing, if we're just putting it in simple terms. Now, thinking and wanting and doing are not three separate things, they're all part of our one self. But, we see glimpses of these, it's, it's sometimes helpful to break those down for purposes of study, as long as we realize they go back together when we're done looking at them. In that perspective, he talks about learning. Learning Christ often has to do with knowledge. He talks about renewing the spirit of your mind, verse 23. So there's the thinking part of it. There's the old self, former manner of life. Manner of life would have to do with our actions, the things that we do outwardly. And then he says, we're putting off what's corrupted according to lusts of deceit. That's wrong desires. So all of those things are, are there. So here's what we often are content with when it comes to change in society. Let's say that someone is a thief. Let's say that he's, he embezzles huge amounts of money. He goes to jail. He gets out of jail. What is society's expectation? What's that? Yes, we want him to stop the bad action. But the action is the final step of the wanting and the thinking that led him to do it in the first place. And so I'm not saying for or against prison whether it actually fixes anything and whether it's an appropriate punishment. I'm just saying apart from God changing what he wants and what he thinks, sooner or later he's going to do some kind of sin. Maybe not embezzling, but some kind of sin. But look at the transformation that we see in verse 28. What solution is held out in connection with spiritual growth to keep him from going back to the wrong habit of stealing? 
So it starts out, stop stealing. But what does he do instead? Work, right? So you're replacing the stealing with something that is obedient. And we say, okay, great, he's fixed the action. But if you look, performing with his own hands what is good, there has to be a degree of change in thinking to recognize what's good and what's not good. There has to be a, a degree of change in his desires because it says, so he'll have something to share with the one who has need. If I am going from trying to grasp as much money as I can for myself to saying I'm going to give money away to help someone who is in need, there has to be a transformation in my desires for that to happen. So I say all of this to say, we can't do this on our own. We need God's help. The Bible demands change in all of these things, putting off all the deeds of the flesh, replacing them with all the fruit of the Spirit, changing not just what we do outwardly, but also what we think and want. How is this change possible? Well, Romans chapter 7 and 8 talk about that the Holy Spirit through Jesus can make this change. For sake of time, we're not going to read that whole passage, but I would encourage you to read it later. It's basically, if you belong to the Spirit, you need to walk according to the Spirit, and if you don't belong to the Spirit, you're going to walk according to the deeds of the flesh, and there's this conflict here, and, and who delivers us th from this conflict? Jesus, through His death, but the Spirit is at work within us to accomplish this change that we can't do on our own. So then we come to point D. I must strive to obey. So just because the Spirit is at work in me doesn't mean I sit back and coast like He's uh, you know, driving me along and I'm just a passenger in the car. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is the Spirit empowers you as you obey all the things God's called you to do. And these two things work hand in hand. I couldn't do it without His power, but I must do it because He's at work in me. And so what does that look like? Well, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work in you to accomplish the spiritual change He said He would do. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11 talks about adding to your knowledge all of these other things leading to spiritual maturity. It's a process, something we have to work at. I'm being changed as I encounter Christ. Those passages in Corinthians and Colossians talk about as we see Jesus face to face, we are transformed into His image from glory to glory. So, maturity then, what would be the test of it? Part of the test of it would be that initial aspect. Is there a change from living the old way to living the new way? As evidenced by outward actions, but also by what I'm thinking about and also by what I want. But even beyond that, sometimes we think that we've arrived if we are individually in a good place spiritually. And as we look at Scripture, passages like 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul says to Timothy as a pastor, pass on truth to others who can pass on truth, primarily to pastors, but not exclusively. And even the Great Commission says, go out and make disciples. So if I know a bunch of things, and I'm doing all the things that I know, and I have a right relationship with God, I should not think I've arrived, I'm done, I'm just going to make it from here till when I go to heaven. I should be thinking... Now, how can I impact the lives of other people around me? Because that's what God's called me to do as a believer. And so I think that this is probably the step that maybe churches like ours struggle with more. Because I think churches like ours have had 
good teaching for a bunch of years. We know what we're supposed to do. I think for the most part, we're not going off the deep end and doing all sorts of crazy things, at least publicly, openly, you know, various sins that get us arrested and create huge scandals and all those sorts of things. Sometimes, but not usually. I think the problem where, the spot where we get hung up is, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know a lot of truth. So I'm just going to sort of sit here and enjoy the, what I know and what I have. And we need to push that forward to, now I've got to go and make disciples because that's what God calls all of us to do. All right, I've been talking a lot here on point one. Any thoughts, feedback, questions on point one here? Okay. So, Right. The Bible says there are signs that you can look for, I think, but like you said, it's not going to look exactly the same for everybody and it's not going to always be like this nice, neat, even equal unfolding of things, right? What's that? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Any other thoughts, Jonathan? I don't understand the word parallel. The word progressive makes sense to me, even though it's not a good way, I don't like it, but it's a good word for this particular application. Parallel doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Um, in my mind, the, yeah, in my mind, the picture was like the two kinds of circuits you have in electricity, right? You have a series circuit, this and then this, and then this, and then this. And then you have a parallel circuit where there's things happening all over the place. Well, there's two wires going each individual Admittedly. So maybe it's not the best illustration. So my point is just to say there can be change happening in various areas of our life. And we can use whatever word we want. There's change happening in various areas of our life all at the same time. It's not we start here, and then we go here, and then we go here, and then we go here. So let me go back to, again, we can, we can argue about the word, but let's go back to this, not that one apparently. Um, let's go back to the baseball diamond thing here, right? So you get saved, and then you learn, and then you, I think it's like witness, and then you teach, right? I don't know that those are the words, but... But this was the popular model that Rick Warren came up with that a lot of churches use or adapt in some way. So my point is, it doesn't go like this. So, John 4. You have someone who's possibly not even a believer yet who starts with the witness part. And then she goes to the learn. In that she goes and finds the other people in the village and says, hey, come meet him. So she does evangelism right out the gate. So if we wait until we've been learning about who Jesus is for three or four years before we ever tell anybody about Jesus, uh, that's where I don't like this model in terms of the step one, step two, step three, step four. So, yeah, progressive, um, nonlinear, whatever word you want to use. That's where I'm coming from. Paul? 
okay, I got done with the not stealing things. Now I can work on the not lying thing. Right. It's not like you have a parallel growth. You're growing in all those aspects at the same right. time. Right. Yeah. So that's just, like I said, I'm just trying to summarize some biblical truth here. And if you like a different word, I'm totally fine with that. So. All right, so let's go on then to number two. And this maybe we'll get into this idea of growth can be uneven and needs help from other members. And so this is where, you know, we might think, well, I've got this thing, so I'm going to go on the next thing, like Paul was saying. But in reality, um, sometimes we can be blind to things. We'll see that in just a moment. And sometimes um, we think we've arrived and we haven't and all those sorts of realities. So we talked about this uh, several times in the past month or so. We have this idea of older teaching younger, Titus 2. Older men teach younger men. Older women teach younger women. The pastor has responsibility to make sure that's happening in the church. There's also the reality of younger appealing to older or leaders in the church. And so we haven't really talked about that part of it as much before. But this is not a one direction kind of thing. It's not just older people teach younger people. But there can be an appeal upward from younger people to older people to say, I think uh, Jesus said we're supposed to do this, and you're doing this. Help me to understand. And so those passages there in 1 Timothy say the way that we approach it should be proper and respectful, but we shouldn't shy away from ever having those conversations with people who are older than us just because they're older, which I think would have been a bigger deal in their culture than in ours. Go ahead, Bob. I know we've talked about this before, too. It, yeah. it seems that there is two aspects to this. Not only physical age, there's also the spiritual age. Right. Because my grandpa got saved at 65. Until he died, he was like a baby still, mm-hmm. spiritually. Yeah. Yes, he could teach things from that he learned in those 80 years, but he couldn't hardly teach anything because he was illiterate. Yeah. So I think we sometimes get caught up on that physical age. Sure. I mean... You're younger, besides the kids, than everybody else in here. Right. Well, I guess Adam, too. Yeah. He's not a kid anymore. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, does that mean you can't teach us? Right. So I think we have to understand that there's duplicity there to a certain extent. Right, right, right. I think that's a good point. Um, yeah, and sometimes the way the, use, the way the Bible uses the word elders is speaking more of a position, and sometimes it's speaking more of age. So sometimes it's talking about people who are spiritually mature, and theoretically the pastor is spiritually mature, and sometimes it's talking about people who are actually older. Um, But I think when it says older men teach younger men in Titus 2, I think it is talking about age, because even though there can be a disconnect between physical age and spiritual age, the idea is that they should be getting closer together as time goes on. So uh, even spiritual leaders like Peter and Barnabas were led astray into hypocrisy. So even teachers are not immune to this idea of needing input from other church members and believers to correct what's wrong. And so I think we've had this conversation on multiple occasions before, but if I'm doing something that is wrong, you guys need to confront me about it. I'm not immune to that sort of thing. And that's, that's I think, a real danger in churches where there's been a lot of respect for pastors and spiritual leaders uh, to think that to think that pastors and spiritual leaders never need that same sort of input and admonishment and whatever else. Because 
if Peter and Barnabas, who've been following Jesus and are just these great examples, if they can be led astray into the hypocrisy of denying the gospel by eating with the Judaizers and ignoring the Gentiles, I think any of us are capable of those sorts of things, regardless of how good we've done up to this point by God's grace and regardless of all the things that we know. The, the third thing under this one is the idea that dealing with sin demands both humility and boldness. So humility would be Galatians 6, 1 to 6. Who would like to read that for us? Let's turn there. Galatians 6, 1 to 6. Anyone want to read that one? Kelly, go ahead. I think I just meant the, the, first, uh, the first couple of verses there. I'm not sure why I put through verse 6 now that I look at it again. But the main idea of verse 1, how do you approach someone who's sinning? Any illustrations come to mind? It's like they're stuck in a bog and you're trying to help them pull out. What can happen if you try to help someone who's stuck in a bog? What if you happens if you try to save someone who's drowning? You can get drowned too, right? So there's humility and care and caution because there's danger for you and for them. But there's also, you don't just say, well, I could get hurt, so forget them, I let them drown, right? But, but you, you do approach it carefully and, and humbly and realizing that you yourself are capable of being in the same spot that they are. So quick application. If you're encouraging someone um, in a counseling context or in um, just with any kind of sin, there's a degree of propriety of don't probe to the extent that they tell you all the details in a way that encourages you to sin in the same way, for example. Um, you don't have to know everything about the way someone's sinning in order to help them. You know, they could say, I'm greedy, and you could say, there's a bunch of things in the Bible about that, or I'm... I've been living lustfully. Here's a bunch of things in the Bible about that. Or I've been angry. There's a bunch of things in the Bible about that. They don't have to say every last thing that's connected with the specific way that they're sinning. Bob? One thought is, you know, depending on how long somebody's been saved, yeah. obviously they can still struggle with different things. Yeah. So, in some cases, if the person already knows the verses, Sure but they need encouragement or they need accountability sure. to actually work through it. Yeah. So it's not just as simple as, you know, hey, yeah. read this verse. Right. And then the next step would be, okay, you know what this says, now are you doing it? And, and I'm going to pray for you this week, and then at the end of the week, how did it go this week? You know those, yes, that's a good point. Uh, also, boldness. Look at 1 Corinthians 5. So humility, because it could be potentially be dangerous for us, and then also boldness. I'll just read this one for sake of time. Paul said, 
I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean immoral people of this world or covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So there's a point, and I think it, it is conditioned according to the person's response and attitude toward being confronted about their sin. First Thessalonians says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, patient with all. So that the way that you approach it and the firmness and boldness with which you approach it, I think depends on the degree of the sin and their response to the conversation. But at some point, if you have someone who's boasting, I'm committing incest with my mother-in-law and it's all cool because Jesus has forgiven me, you've got to say no, out of here, right? And so that's what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There comes a point at which you have to say, we have to have the boldness and the love and the obedience to God to say, this person's not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not listening to wise counsel. They're not responding to spiritual rebuke. They can no longer be a part of our church. And that is a really hard thing to do. Quick aside about that, I think that's why churches have tended to reserve it for only really obvious things. Because it's harder to say someone has a pattern of gossip than it is to say someone committed adultery. The one's really obvious, the other's a little harder to establish. But if we only act like it's reserved for two or three sins, I think we miss the point of what's going on here. Now, obviously, there's a degree of public, there's a degree to which something is disrupting the unity of the church. Those are the ones that have to be dealt with most urgently. But all sin that's unrepentant has to be dealt with sooner or later in this, in this way. Last point here, number three. Ministry is possible now, even though all need more growth. And this is the, the point that I was trying to get across, that, that there's all these different areas of our life that, that we're changing and growing in. But that doesn't mean that we have to wait until we've arrived to do ministry, because then we'll never do ministry. And this is where I think the biggest thing, when it comes to something like evangelism, Something like evangelism, the Samaritan woman heard Jesus and she goes and tells other people. Uh, Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter. They're not necessarily even believers yet, but they encounter Jesus and they say, hey, I got to tell somebody else. So in a model like this that says, well, you're not going to teach anybody anything or you're not going to tell anybody about Jesus until like three years down the road when you've kind of got it. That's not biblical. Now, we see the same thing with the blind man who witnesses to the Pharisees. They're amazed and they throw him out of the synagogue because they're mad because he tells them all these things that they know are true. And he says, this is an amazing thing. Here's a man who did this and, and it seems like he must be the son of God. Why don't you guys get this? You're the important people who know all the right answers. And they got really upset at that and threw him out of the synagogue. But he's speaking truth. Now, Someone witnessing when they first trust Jesus versus someone witnessing when they've known Jesus a long time, is the person who's known Jesus a long time potentially going to be able to say it better and more clearly, hopefully, but does that mean this person doesn't witness? No, they need to be witnessing too. Now, I think we recognize that some ministry needs more preparation. If someone's going to be put into a position of leadership in the church, 
1 Timothy 3.6, one of the qualifications is that the pastor or the elder shouldn't have gotten saved last week because there's a real danger that Satan, because he wants to destroy churches and disrupt unity, is going to try to pull him down. And so there needs to be some measure of maturity established first before he goes to lead the church. Otherwise, the whole thing's going to fall apart. So there's danger there. Uh, but I don't think you use that the way that, I think I've told you guys this story before, uh, you don't use that the way that the church that I grew up in did. We were having a teen night where we were going to present a little Bible admonition sermon, if you want to call it that. And there were three guys that got picked to do it, and I was one of the three guys. And so I prepared my little section of the sermon, and I was all ready to go. And they said, hey, you just got baptized six months ago. You can't do this. The thing is, getting baptized six months ago and giving a testimony is completely different from saying we're going to hire you to be the pastor. And so I think we recognize that. So we should be providing opportunities for new converts to do things in the church and then as they prove themselves faithful, expanding those opportunities. All right, that's the really quick rundown. I know we're rushing through it at the end. Any final questions as we wrap up? Okay. My goal in coming weeks is to take all these things that we've talked about and say, all right, what are we going to do in our church based on what we've seen of the way God wants us to do discipleship, fellowship, ministry in the church? Let's pray. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to be here this morning. We pray that as we look at the, the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, that we would learn the truths you'd have us to see from that, be motivated to follow you more. Uh, we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.